Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. We talk about environmental justice a lot on the show, so today, in honor of Women's History Month, we're going to highlight the work of Hazel Johnson, the so-called mother of the environmental justice movement. Johnson lived in Altgeld Gardens, a public housing community on Chicago's southeast side. When she noticed a lot of people in her community dying of cancer, she decided to look into it and fight back. Johnson taught residents how to test for lead. She demanded the Chicago Housing Authority to remove asbestos, and she pushed the city to stop opening landfills near homes. Johnson died in 2011, but her legacy lives on. Here to tell us more is her daughter, Cheryl Johnson. She's the executive director of People for Community Recovery, the organization her mother founded. Cheryl, how would you describe your mom? I'd describe my mom as a motherly person. In the community, she was known as Mama Hazel, Mama Johnson, Mm. and Mama to her, you know, to her kids and everybody. So uh, she always, she's always a lady that was engaged in her community and make sure that youth in the community has activities, but also fight some of the wrongs that we was experiencing in our community. Yeah, sounds about right, because she used to organize uh, block parties and and field trips for the kids, right? Yes, yes. Ever since I lived, I've been living out here in another week, about 60 years, and uh, my mom, I always knew that she was engaged in things and active, uh, activities for, for kids. She was even my supervisor <laughs> when I was a teenager cleaning up my community for the summer program. So, uh, yeah, she, she's she been like that all her life. And In fact, my mother was one of the founding members for the Woodline organization when she lived before she moved out here in Algale. Very cool. Let's listen to Hazel Johnson herself. I want to turn to a clip where uh, she was interviewed by a WBEZ reporter back in 1988. I've been hollering for many years about the problem out on the southeast side, and I think that we are beginning to make people aware of the problem, but it's a a political problem. Mm -hmm. And that's what we really have to deal with. Cheryl, what was it that motivated her to start looking into the environmental hazards that uh, Altgeld Gardens residents were facing back then? Well, you know, uh, our neighborhood was known as one of the most polluted area when you come down to Bishop Ford Expressway. You knew you was getting close to our community just based on the smell. So she always thought that was just wrong. Why are we smelling these horrible chemicals in our community? And also living right across the street from a water sewage treatment facility. And the smells that come off to that was unbearable. But when she heard that the south side of Chicago had the highest incidence based on zip code, and we was the number one at the list, she got concerned. She started making a connection because my father, he passed away in 69 from a rapid uh, lung cancer. He mm-hmm. was diagnosed in March, and he died that following year in June. So just having a conversation with, with residents in the community, they was telling her about their experience with cancer, being in remission. or mm-hmm. And there was three little young girls under the age of two. They didn't have one cancer. They had multiple types of cancer. So she was really concerned about that, and that's what motivated us to start getting involved. 
Yeah, a lot of people were getting sick. So once she started researching, she found uh, a staggering number of hazards around the community. Uh, mm-hmm. it, she called the area the toxic donut, right? That's absolutely, because she felt that our community is in the center and outside the parameter of the donut is 50 documented landfills, 250 leaky underground storage tanks, and over 350 uh, uh, facility hazardous waste processing, manufacturing, disposal mm-hmm. in our area, and that's and, and along with the sewage treatment facility, and that's why she labeled our community toxic donut. Yeah, 50 landfills were nearby. There's a chemical incinerator as well, uh, abandoned industrial dump sites. Yeah, a lot happening there. So, so why did your mother start People for Community Recovery? And talk to us about how the organization's mission has developed over the years. Well, actually, she started the organization because we are located in Allgale Gardens, a public housing development out here on 130th Street. She was always active, but she felt that CHA, the Chicago Housing Authority, wasn't doing what it's supposed to in far as, like, repairing our units because we had a lot of infrastructure problems, pill and pain, uh, leaking water pipes, and all those different things is why she founded the organization. But less than a year into that movement, she was able to find out about the environmental problems that we have in our community. So she made mm-hmm. those connections, um, looking at the poor health of the community, the what we are surrounded around, and what we are living in. So she really learned about the not only just lead and asbestos, but she got what they call they was used for installation in our apartment angel hair fibers, which is also a, a real hazardous problem that she she fought and got removed. She didn't found the organization to be an organization. She found she founded the organization to bring people to make people aware yeah. about what was going on in their community and how to fight back. And there was an education component, just as you were saying, right? She she even taught residents how to identify lead poisoning. Exactly. We was one of the first community-based organizations in the country to bring a technical training back down into the community. And the community learned how to remove lead-based paint from homes based on the training that we provided to the community. So she just didn't look at the health disparities that that is associated with it because we knew that a lot of children was lead poisoned in our community at that particular time because of the feeling pain. But also to look at it from what's the economical and educational component of that. Because if you teach the community in the community how to remove those environmental lead hazards, you know, they would do the job to the best of their ability because they live here. So we tried to make our training conducive to what the issues are in our community and try to make it economical for it. For an example, we have PCB contamination that's in our community. So we tra- we train people who was uh, who was be able to get those jobs to remove those environmental hazards from the soil. So, and that was the, what they call, has, they call it HAZWOPER training. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the requirements that they need in order to be employed. So she, she has the ability to really look at the intersectionality of the negative impacts that make our community unhealthy. And she tried to deal with each one of those aspects to make our community a better place to live. 
Let's hear more about this work in Hazel's words. We've been trying to get Illinois EPA and the U.S. EPA to clean up this area, and they say that we was not on a priority list. Mm -hmm. So in so many ways, they're saying it's not bad enough for them to clean up. Mm -hmm. But I can't see, I don't agree with that. So Cheryl, as we know, your mother had several wins along the way of her fight. Let's talk about the work to connect Maryland Manor to the city water and sewage line, because this was a big victory. Yeah, that, and in fact, that was our very first environmental victory. Maryland Manor is a, is a little south community right outside the skirt of Allgale. And for 25 years, they was paying taxes for a sewer line and a water line that they never had. They was actually drinking well water in this particular area. And considering it's in the area where the Georgia Employment operated a a sewage farm back in the 1860s, but if draining ditches went through Maryland Manor to dispose in the Little Calumet River. So the soil over there, it was highly contaminated, and they drained, and they were source of water, was well water, so it was visibly contaminated. And that was at the time when Harold Washington was our mayor, and I forgot who was the state governor at that particular time. They agreed to come because my mother lobbied the city and the state to get funding to be able to give them that connection to the water system and also to build a sewer line. And they was embarrassed to say that this within the boundaries of the city of Chicago and these folks paying taxes for services that they didn't have. And they was drinking highly bathing and cooking in highly contaminated water drinking well water. So that was like an embarrassment. So they appropriated money for that little area to be able to get that those two systems installed. But it's also in the area of a historical significance because it's, it's the only route within the city of Chicago for the Underground Railroad to lead through the Little Cashmere River up to Michigan City and to, up to Canada. So that just got a national recognition last year. So this area is is very significant for history, but it's also a very significant area for continuous environmental education in this area. Because um, in our community, you know, it's known like this comedian came up with the concept of baby kids. They don't die. They multiply, right? Mm. So I use that analogy when I talk about chemicals because chemicals don't die. They multiply and they don't go away. They have a half-life of 500 years or more. So that contamination still exists, but there's an educational process because we're into urban agriculture and all this stuff, but we got to make sure that land is safe. So why not teach our kids the science in the community and how to abate those hazards in our community? Cheryl, she didn't use the term environmental justice. She used the phrase environmental racism. Can you talk about that? Um, yes, because one of the things that, uh, as you just mentioned in the little clip that she was just speaking from, uh, when she started lot, you know, advocating with the United States Environmental Protection Agency, Region 5, they was not mandated to work with communities. They was only mandated to work to regulate industry and to work with academic institutions. And that's what she coined environmental racism based on those two principles alone. 
But she did not give up. She kept continuing to pressure our Region 5 EPA to do something to say she should have a right. Mm-hmm. We should have a right to know what's going on in our own community. And so as for years went past, there was a movement going on around the country about the same principles and different areas of this country. And that's how she was able to connect on a national level and where they got together and had the first people of color summit in 92. And that's when she was ordained the mother environmental justice. And they got to work with the Clinton administration mm-hmm. to get the passes of the Environmental Justice Executive Order 12898, which opened up not only the U.S. EPA to community, but the right for us to have information and resources from other uh, I mean, federal governments. Yeah. So, and today to hear the president, because let me take it back a little bit. When she was calling environmental racism here in Region 5, they was talking about environmental equity. And she said, well, there ain't no equity in this process because my communities keep getting dumped on the more. So how is that equitable? Mm-hmm. You know, so see. this went back and forth until the country, EJ community, said we're going to call it environmental. It's a, we are settled for environmental justice, but we know in order to get to justice, you got to deal with the racism part of it. Yeah. Well, some of the work that you're doing now, Cheryl, it's in response to the expansion of the CTA. How are you making sure that community residents benefit from the expansion of the red line and, and some buses? You know, we engage in that whole process uh, from the very interception of it when they first announced it, because we know we was working with a huge deficit when it comes to public transportation in our area. So that's why we got engaged, but we're trying our best to make sure that the community knows about this because there's an opportunity. How great it would be to go from all Gale Guards to Loyola University on the far north side in one transit. And it also can bring opportunities for our community that never been here before, but it also raised the question about gentrification in our community. And, you know, the apathy in the community, because we, this is about 30 years of lack of services. We are a food desert. Every desert that you could think about Mm -hmm. is happening in my community at this present moment. It's been going on for the last 30 years. So it created this level of apathy, but you don't give up. Pretty soon, my community is going to be heavily engaged. You know, we're very small. Our resources are very limited. And we're talking about the impact that this is going to have on nearly 5,000 apartments in our area. So it's not just about August. It's about the mm-hmm. adjacent neighborhoods to us, getting this information and learning about it. So it's a real challenge. It's mm-hmm. a real challenge because we're not used to being engaged in these discussions. We never been we never been at the table. We always been the menu. So the change from being from the menu to the table, you mm-hmm. know, it's that trust level, you know, yeah. is uh, because we've been lied to for so many years and decades. To we don't know what's real truth and what the real benefit is coming out of. But I see the benefit. Yeah. So it's important for me as a resident in this community and the activist in this community to try to get this information out the best I could. 
Well, just about a minute left with you, Cheryl. I, I want to have you talk briefly about that uh, proposed legislation to honor your mother. Yes, in honor of the work that my mom is doing, uh, Bobby Rush, Congressman Bobby Rush, introduced three pieces of uh, federal legislation. One is to give a commemorative stamp in honor of the work that she did and, and, and to keep the awareness going on about environmental justice. Two is to give her a congressional medal that they would place in the Smithsonian, what, African-American Museum in D.C., which allow it to have a home and to create discussions and to honor other EJ leaders around the country to be able to talk about EJ issues that's related to our community. And the third one is to honor her work to create the Hazel Johnson Environmental Justice Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. This is to continue this work because it's not just continues on the negative impact. It's the impact that we're having on our community. Yeah. It's the impact that we have on our city, state, federal, and globally. Mm -hmm. So this creates those mediums for that allow those discussion to continue. Yeah. And I'm just proud to say that I want a bad post stamp for my mother. You yeah, know, that's, awesome. that's a personal matter for me. So, yeah. I, you know, I love that for the, for the fact, but yeah. it's, it's who she's about. You know, Absolutely. she well, she well deserved. Mother. She wasn't just my mother. Well deserved. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Cheryl Johnson is the daughter of Hazel Johnson, also executive director of People for Community Recovery. Thank you so much, Cheryl, and happy early birthday to you. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks so much for spending this time with us. For more local conversations about the world around you, tune in every weekday afternoon to this podcast and follow us on Twitter at WBEZ Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great day and we'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.